Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nova Southeastern University's South Florida Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program podcast, also known as the SFGWEP podcast. We are here today to educate, encourage, and enhance our knowledge and skills and promote all those amazing health profession experts working with the elderly, including caregivers and interprofessional teams. My name is Dr. Vincent Guida, and I'm an associate professor of medicine at the Karan Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University. In today's episode, we're taking an in-depth look at effective communication strategies and dementia care with our subject matter expert, Dane Duval. Dane is a nationally certified Alzheimer educator and is approved by the Florida Department of Elder Affairs to provide state-required Alzheimer's and dementia education and training. He is the Dementia Education Coordinator at Nova Southeastern University's GWEP. He is also the lead GWEP COVID Telehealth for Underserved Population Program Director. He is the Senior Medical Advisor to a tech startup company that has developed smartphone apps for concussions and sports, traumatic brain injury in the military, and is developing an app for detecting dementia in the geriatric population. Dane continues to dedicate his life to educating healthcare and elder care staff, family members, and the general public about the importance of providing informed, proper care to people living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Hello, Dane. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our GWEP podcast, and I wanted to thank you for your time and expertise. Can we start by you telling us why this topic is important to you? Thanks, Dr. Guida. I really appreciate that introduction. And it's kind of a circuitous route of how I've come into the world of dementia education. I was for a long time in the fashion and design world, and my dad had Alzheimer's at an earlier age than, than most people uh, expect. My father died at about the age of 72 after about 10 to 12 years of this awful disease that we, that we all, we're not supposed to use the word suffering, but you know, my dad suffered, my family suffered, and so it brought me to a place where what can I do to give back to um, this community of people? And so I have been for the last eight or nine years involved in dementia education. And so it's a personal thing to me. But uh, over this time, at first, whenever I was involved in this, I couldn't really engage with family members. It was just too raw for me to, to try to engage. And over time, specifically working with people that provide the direct care, so the day-to-day -day people, so the certified nursing assistants, the home health aides, those people taught me a lot about what it means to take care of someone outside of my personal experience of uh, providing care for my father. So that's kind of where I ended, how I ended up here in the world of dementia education and have continued to explore research. I'm very involved in understanding the, the, where, what it takes to educate people and not just the frontline staff, but we have a, a huge problem in the clinical world of understanding what goes into the day-to-day -day care. Okay, great, Dane. Can you share with us what you believe that health professionals 
should know about the topic of communicating with regards to effective strategies in dementia care? Yeah, so I think what we have to realize first is that communication is one of the first thing that leaves a person that is going through this awful disease. And a lot of times when we think of communication, we think it's just talking. But we find that, that people with moderate stage dementia even have a hard time understanding. So it's, you know, communication normally with, with all of us is a two-way street. And a lot of times what happens in dementia educate, I mean, in dementia, the person has a hard time understanding. So that's where we have to retrain ourselves. And I think that's the hard part is the people that have Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, they're not going to get better. And so it's up to us to change how we perceive this, how we try to communicate. So it's understanding that they can't necessarily understand us. And then when they do, what they say may not be exactly what they're trying to communicate. And even more importantly, many people can't communicate. They might be communicating with what we call behaviors, and I'll use air quotes for that. We, we call it behaviors, yet it's normal for them. This is their normal life, and it's up to us to figure out what they're trying to tell us, what, what we're considering as behaviors. So that, I think, is one of the really important things, is understanding that we have to change our mindset to understand better that they really cannot communicate the way we normally would. Can you help us with some strategies that we might use? Sure. I think that there are certain things that what everybody goes through, and they educate certain things about principles of how to structure this. What we have to do is just throw out what we normally would do, especially I find this really problematic for people who have children and have raised children. You always hear your mom say, what did I tell you? Or don't you remember? Well, these are two things you do not want to say to a person who has moderate or advanced age dementia. So we have to relearn how we present uh, an issue. That's one of the things is, is reframing our mindset in how do we present this to someone. That's one of the things because this is not a one size fits all. If you know somebody with Alzheimer's disease, you know one person with Alzheimer's disease. And as a clinician, you, you see this. It's not like a certain stage of cancer where you can kind of say, okay, this is what our plan of action is going to be. This is what our care plan is going to be. It's much more difficult to do that with, with someone with dementia. And you have to keep in mind that it's a fatal disease. It's not something that there's a clinical treatment plan. There's not like you don't do chemo for Alzheimer's. You don't go once every month for updates and, and do blood tests to see if you're getting better. This is something that over time is going to require 24-hour care and not medical care. It's just going to require someone to be with that person. And trying to understand how that fits into the scheme of things is not easy for a clinician and it's certainly not easy for anyone in the family that's trying to take care for it. So that's it's hard to give advice to people, but I think from the healthcare perspective, the number one thing is to understand what the family is going through, understand what the frontline staff is going through. I mean, I've recently made some presentations to clinicians, and it's amazing that they've not considered this, that they don't take into account what is really required for this day-to-day -day care. They see the patient maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. And so all they see is the decline. 
and they don't see the day-to-day -day anguish that people are going through or the fact that a frontline staff member may not have been properly educated and then the person is becomes non-responsive. You put that in a chart and that could be problems down the road because of different things for clinical assessments. But if the person is non-responsive, it might be because of the person that's providing care for them. So there's all these kind of interesting tidbits that I don't think anybody can figure out. It's that day-to-day -day that we have to try to concentrate on. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point that uh, your comment, if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've just met one person with Alzheimer's. Very often patients will come in and say, I think I'm losing my memory, doc. And it'll be someone I've taken care of for a long time. So I, I have a sense of what they look like five years ago and what they look like now. And some of those patients, I'll just say, I just reassure. I say, look, you know, you're 85. It's hard to recall things. And I use an analogy of a filing cabinet. Well, there aren't many filing cabinets around anymore. But I say, do you remember those three-drawer filing cabinets? Well, imagine if you had a file and you put it in and there was nothing else in any of the three drawers. And I said, Murray, go get the file. You'd walk over, open the drawer, there it is, and hand it to me. But now imagine that the filing cabinet is packed full of charts, and you have to kind of finger your way through the charts to find the chart, and you've got to pull it out. So it's going to take you a lot longer to find that chart and bring it to me. Well, that's what happens to our brains as we get older. We slow down because there are so many memories there. So I try to reassure folks like that. And then, of course, if I have a suspicion, I'll do a formal mini mental status. I will tell you that if a family member comes in, a wife or a child or a significant other, um, and comes and tells you, I'm really concerned about mom, dad, my spouse's, my partner's memory, pay significant attention. Even if you're confident that you don't think there is, family members who spend time with their patient day in, day out, they know more than you. And oh. so there, I put tremendous significance. Yeah, and I, I realize that in and our family and what has happened in, in many cases is that the person with dementia has known for a long time. They know what their deficits are and they're very good at hiding them, especially when it comes to the word salads. We use that a lot of times and what's interesting is that you might not be able to remember the word. You can give a whole soliloquy so that you can get around forgetting that word. But also, notice things like, for instance, with my dad, he always wore a tie. And all of a sudden, he was having issues with getting that, even the, the basics of which side to go. Or what we end up finding also, too, is my mom would send him to get some cash from the ATM. And he'd come back without it. And he'd say, oh, I just forgot. And it kept happening. Come to find out, my dad could not remember the four-digit pin. So those little things where people want to hide that. I was at a conference a few years ago, and a gentleman with early onset Alzheimer's, and he's a great speaker, he said, let me tell you what it's like. I live in California. I'm driving down the road in my convertible, and I'm having a beautiful day. And all of a sudden, it turns black and cloudy. It's foggy as hell. I can't see where I'm going, and I'm just holding on to the wheel, hoping I'm not going to run off into the Pacific Ocean. And I'm driving and driving, then all of a sudden, it's sunny again. He goes, that's what Alzheimer's is like for me. I try to get down the road, and I don't know 
if I'm going to make it. But then everything is fine. So I look at that and think, we automatically assume that people are cognitively at a huge deficit all the time, when actually they probably go in and out of what we consider this fog. Yeah, you're making an excellent point, because we hear that all the time from family members, that some days mom or dad or their significant other are quite good, and then other days just just terrible as far as cognitive yeah, ability. And, and my dad, what's interesting is I have super blue eyes like my dad did, and all the way through the, and that's what's really hard for a family member is not being recognized by their loved one. And my mom, she dealt with it. One of my siblings says, I can't see dad anymore because he's not the person I've known and love. And that's, you know, everybody deals with it differently. But every time I'd come into the room and say, hey, daddy-o, even if he didn't know who I was, there was something, I think he recognized himself in my eyes. And so whatever you can do to pick up on those little things, it's so hard. Earlier I was talking about the fact that I really had a hard time dealing with family members at first when I started doing this education. But now I find that that's the, that's the, mo the group that I enjoy the most because I feel that even though I don't know exactly what they're going through, I've been there, my mom has been there, and so if I can just share a little bit to help them, that really helps them tremendously, just to be able to talk about it. I just thought of something um, while you were talking, and, and that was that sense of when you're interviewing a patient that they may have some cognitive impairment. And, and this has to do with the patient themselves. When patients believe that they're becoming cognitively impaired, and it's our observation that they are, they're usually terrified. They are very upset. I've seen people just concerned. I've seen people coming and bawling. I think I'm losing my mind. I, I forgot this. I should know it. And on the surface, you think they're functioning fairly well. When they become significantly demented, cognitively impaired, I'll say, Marion, who's this woman with you? I don't know, but she seems to be around me a lot. I said, Marion, that's your, that's your son's wife. You know, she she's always brings you for your visits. You don't seem to remember that, Marion. And Miriam says, yeah, you're right. I said, Miriam, do, does that upset you? Do you are, are you upset that you don't recognize your daughter-in-law? No, not really. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, the Celestial Design Committee, I think, built that into the disease um, well, to take away some of the anguish. Yeah. Because at some point, I don't know, I can't remember, I really don't care at this point. <laughs> well, I think that it's amazing. I, I've told my friends, as long as I'm enjoying the, the fun part of dementia, let me ride. Just let it ride. Because you know what? I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to be in like the forever land. Uh, but when it comes to that time where I don't know anybody and I can't take care of myself, yeah, maybe maybe we need to have discussions about that. And that's exactly why my mom is not my healthcare surrogate. Because she will do everything in her power to make sure that I am taken care of and that's what a mom is supposed to do. I said, but mom, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. And all of us have that choice. But but back to the the whole thing about the not receiving a diagnosis. There are data that states that up to 40% of clinicians do not give the diagnosis. I don't know where this comes from, but I know that the Alzheimer's Association has published that. Um, could you imagine that if you had a patient that had cancer, stage three cancer of whatever origin, 
and you didn't give them the diagnosis. How does that track with not giving the diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another form of dementia? I can't grasp that. I do understand that the family says, don't tell mom. So is that, does that figure into it? I'm, I don't know. I think, I think you have the answer. The answer is when you said earlier that if you've met one dementia patient, you've met one dementia patient. Patients with dementia do not present stereotypically. They all look very different. Their degrees of cognitive deficit are different. Some of them have memory issues, some of them have executive function issues, some of them have combinations of both. And then they wax and wane. Some days they're better, some days they're not. So on the early side of the spectrum and the early disease, which is probably when you want to know that you have a dementing illness so that you can make plans, it's kind of hard to label somebody with such a horrible stigma. It's very easy to recognize the far side because there goes Granny walking down the hall naked and about to go out in the street. And it's December and it's snowing. So, you know, there it's easy. So I think that has a lot, a well, lot also, to do with why people are not given that diagnosis. Yeah. <clears throat> and so whenever I speak on, on longer issues or platforms, I always say get a diagnosis. And people say, well, why? There, there's no cure. What can I do? Well... For instance, I had a really good friend a few years ago call me and said, listen, Dane, dad has Alzheimer's. I said, wait, 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 hold on. I just saw your dad six months ago. Tell me what's happened in the last six months. Well, he's, he doesn't play golf every day anymore. When I call him to, to talk to his two grandsons, he says, I'll talk to him later. He's very lethargic. He doesn't care. He's just not himself. I said, okay, how long has this been going? She goes, well, probably about three months. I said, okay, first of all, Alzheimer's disease doesn't work that way. It's not an acute, I don't recognize. So for, for what we have to do there is I said, okay, start over. Have your dad go to his primary care physician and get a blood work done. up. Just have him you know, do a physical or whatever. I said, and then we can discuss it further. So a couple of months later, she goes, oh my God, thank you so much. He had a thyroid condition. He's back playing golf. He can't wait to see his grandsons. And the moral of this story is, what if she hadn't talked to me? What if she had just assumed that dad had Alzheimer's? What if he had not gone to the doctor? First of all, thyroid would have gotten worse. They would assume he had Alzheimer's disease. So it could have been faux dementia, which we see sometimes. And so for two years, they could have gone down the road of dad has Alzheimer's. So for that reason, get a diagnosis. And also, if dad has Alzheimer's disease or other form of dementia, you can make plans for it. Good point. I thought you were going to tell me that that person was depressed because there is a syndrome called pseudodementia where patients look exactly like you described. They become withdrawn, they lack interest in what they're doing, they're apathetic, and it's actually depression. Although, in some respects, I think a talented clinician can separate pseudodementia from true dementia, at least if the pseudodementia is depression. Yeah, and what I'm, what I'm finding, we know that some of the dementias are very difficult to diagnose. Maybe the earlier, and what we're seeing now is a lot more earlier onset. And I think we're seeing that that is with uh, dementia with Lewy bodies and also with frontal temporal dementia. We're seeing that happening earlier on. And I think that's helping us in research, but the, the, what I call the combo platter of a neurologist and a neuropsychologist. And there's a lot of teams, especially here in South Florida, that are working together like that, because guess what? If someone gets a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, 
and they are put on some maintenance drug. Well, if they have dementia with Lewy bodies, there's going to be a huge drug <laughs> problem because the drug developed for Alzheimer's disease can sometimes create huge complications with people with Lewy bodies. So trying to get that diagnosis is not easy a lot of times. I know with my father, you know, he went to the VA and they had expert clinicians, but it took them a long time. And first he was diagnosed with a vascular dementia, which we see a lot of the, again, a combo platter of Alzheimer's and vascular, but vascular started presenting earlier than the dementia, than Alzheimer's disease. So that gets really confusing in for the family members, like, okay, I give up. But so trying to get them to the right team to evaluate that is not always easy. Yeah, I agree. Um, there are some centers that do combine the care of a neurologist with a psychologist for specialized testing. Um, I think there's a true benefit to that. Yeah, so. I myself am impressed with bedside caregivers or the, the most intimate of caregivers, the caregivers that spend the most time and how they work out their own effective means of communicating with the patient, be it with verbal prompts, physical prompts, sometimes taking the role of the individual that the patient thinks they are but they truly are not and helping them to negotiate the daily care in that fashion. And to go a little bit further, what we see is moving into the person's reality. So for instance, if somebody says, why it's awfully hot for here in Columbus, Ohio, and I just don't understand, I would normally have on a sweater this time of year. Well, you don't tell the person, oh, by the way, you're now in Hollywood, Florida, and it's always hot here. You have to move to that person and where their, her reality is. So when I'm talking with anyone who provides care, it's like, don't try to correct them. Move to their reality. And if that means saying, okay, tell me more about Columbus, Ohio, and is that where you grew up? And what that helps is you learn more about the person and where their mindset is at that moment. And keep in mind, they can be in Columbus now, and in 15 minutes, they're back in Hollywood. So it's knowing when to move to their reality, but never try to, don't try to have an argument with somebody with dementia because they're going to win. That's, that's an excellent point. I've seen talented caregivers redirect patients, and that clearly is the best strategy. Do you see any kind of breakthroughs in the future with regards to dealing with Alzheimer's patients? So we do have... We do have a new drug that's in the market. That is offering hope to people. I don't know the whole ramifications of everything. I know there's been back and forth about this particular drug. But for me, we always deal with unintended consequences. And to me, the unintended consequence in this drug, approval by the FDA, is it's giving people hope. And previously, we had not seen people with hope because there's not a cure. And there still isn't a cure. But I think that this has caused people to be more in, engaged with their primary caregiver because they're asking about this. Most people don't want a diagnosis. There's huge studies done on this that shows that family members fight to get a diagnosis, but they don't want the diagnosis, and they certainly don't want mom to know. 
So we have to deal with this on a regular basis. So maybe this new approval has caused people to reach out more because maybe they think, okay, guess what? There is something on the horizon where we have to do, I think, better due diligence is research has stuck with a certain hypothesis. And I think that now they're looking at different ways. I think that we're going to find out that Alzheimer's disease specifically is a syndrome. And there might be different avenues, just like with HIV and having a combination drug that is now making it a, a disease that can be managed as opposed to there not being a cure. But I think that's what we're going to see in Alzheimer's disease. And I think that more research is being done in different avenues. And I think that's going to only be beneficial for the horizon. Yeah, I think you um, make an excellent point. There has been more of a shift to uh, treating Alzheimer's early, looking at possible etiologies and attacking them before the dementia has has developed. Uh, the new drug that you reference um, is along those lines. Unhappily, due to the cost and uh, some of the uh, research data, the drug has not been that widely embraced, but hopefully there will be new drugs on well, the Well, and also, too, there's, you know, Eli Lilly has now got a new trial, which I've actually signed up for um, because I have a parent who died from Alzheimer's. I've cleared that first hurdle because they're, they're looking for people who have familial touch to, to the disease. And then from there, they're going to be uh, testing the new uh, blood biomarker, and they're going to be doing clinical trial on actually a similar disease to adjuhelm, which we were talking about, that has been approved. So that's another good thing is that I can't encourage anybody enough to become involved in clinical trials. And clinicians, I think, could help in that respect. I think that healthcare providers could say, hey, you know what, let's improve who is participating in clinical trials because we don't have enough people. And if we're going to find a chemical or a drug that is going to help with this, it's only going to be that you're giving it earlier than later because we're finding that the drugs that are given later, they're not really helping. And I think if we find something that, let's say, if you know what your risk factor is and we can identify it at the age of 50, then you could probably take that drug and it would either slow the process and maybe in the future it would maybe just ameliorate the, the whole disease. Excellent point. Dane, I've always been impressed with your knowledge and your passion about educating in Alzheimer's disease, but you've raised it to a new level today by telling us that you yourself are willing to participate in a research study. I'm very impressed. Let me ask you one more question. If you had one magic wish that you could have fulfilled in the area of Alzheimer's, either research, clinical care, education, what would it be? This isn't going to be popular. I wish that primary care physicians knew more about Alzheimer's disease. And as you know, I presented during Journal Club about this. I keep impressing. The Alzheimer's Association did a really great study a couple of years ago about people's perceptions. And we're talking about primary care physicians and what their knowledge of the disease is. And it's really sad that and now when I talk about frontline staff, I'm talking about primary care physicians because that's who people see. I wish that they would be more engaged. One of the things that I go around and anecdotally analyze, I ask people who are on Medicare, have they had a cognitive test during their annual wellness exam? 
And the answer is 99% no. And it's required by Medicare. So what's happening with the primary care physicians that they have a mandate, yet they don't provide the cognitive. Now, maybe I'm just talking to the wrong people, but that would be my one magic wand. If I could do anything, I would want primary care physicians to be better informed and actually engage with their patients and figure out if we can find this earlier, then maybe that we can help that patient. Well, hopefully today we've embarked in that path. As you know, the Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program has a goal, and that is to educate the non-geriatricians in the care of the elderly. We know that there's a woeful lack of uh, geriatricians. Uh, I saw a recent statistic that in the United States there are approximately 950 residency positions for plastic surgery and 270 for geriatric medicine. Well, and then I've seen numbers that that used to be that there was about a 3% interest in geriatrics in medical students and even that is woefully low as you say and the thing is to me that population is expanding yet people don't want to go into that specialty because they think they're not going to make the money well guess what so you have to work a few more hours a, a, a week to get the volume but it's there well you make a good point about the population expanding i think by 1940 uh, I'm sorry, 2040, that 22% of the population will be 65 and older. And the fastest growing segment of the senior population is 85 and older. And they're growing at a much faster percentage. So And, and living longer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dane, thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise with our audience. It's been a pleasure having you. Where can the audience find more resources on this topic? So, first of all, there's the GWEP website, and that we can direct to you on the front end of the podcast. I think the information description will have some links. Specifically, on our GWEP website, there is some resources, two of which I have a recorded and also a PowerPoint presentation on what we were discussing today, effective communication strategies in dementia care. And then there's another one there that is just, what do you know about dementia? Or let's talk about dementia. Those are two really good ones that I encourage everyone to go to and share. If people don't have the bandwidth to provide education, these are great links that you can share with staff and family members because that's who it's really dedicated for. And so I think that those uh, resources would be really beneficial. Terrific. Dane DeVal, thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Guida. I appreciate it. Please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our renowned subject matter experts.